Welcome to the final day of the January Series 2017. My name is Christy Potter, and I'm the director of the January Series. Can you believe it? The time has gone by so quickly. It's been a great 15 days, and I know many of you come day after day to enjoy the presentations. And we've been inspired together, we've been challenged, we've learned together, and I hope that it's been a blessing to you all. As we close out our 30th year, I just want to say a special thanks to our series underwriters, Baker Publishing and Doug and Maria DeVos, to all of our sponsors, our daily underwriters, and those of you who sent in gifts in the envelopes. All of you have helped make the January series a free gift for all, and we are grateful. Thanks also to our technical team for all your hard work behind the scenes and to the hosts at the 50 remote sites. I know that you've worked very hard on these 15 days. And on this final day, I want to send out a special welcome to the audiences at four of our remote sites, Portland, Oregon, Chino, California, Muskegon, Michigan, and the LCC International University in Lithuania. And now President Leroy, um, the president at Kelvin College, will introduce the Stab Lecture Series and open with prayer. Thank you. Good afternoon, and it has been an incredible year as we celebrate the 30th anniversary of the series. Today, the long-standing Staub Lecture Series also coincides with the January series, as today's address continues the series history of bringing to light matters of ethics, apologetics, and philosophical theology. The Staub Lecture is sponsored annually by Calvin College and Calvin Theological Seminary in honor of Dr. Henry J. Staub, who served so well as a professor in both institutions. The Staub Lecture is funded by the Henry J. Staub Endowment, and we express our appreciation to the family of Dr. Staub for their continued support of this event. Now please join me in prayer. Holy God, we come before you in reverence and awe. You carry us through the seasons of the year and the seasons of the heart. You grant wisdom, and you reveal knowledge. You have blessed your servant, Tom Wright, in great measure with both wisdom and knowledge. So, too, now bless us through his words with fresh perspectives on the cross of Jesus Christ, which saves us and prompts us to live in gratitude. Amen. Now, I would like to introduce my friend and the president of Calvin Theological Seminary, Jewel Maidenblick, who will introduce Tom Wright. A brief introduction to N.T. Wright, a contradiction in terms. A prolific writer of both popular and scholarly books, N.T. Wright bridges the world of the academy and the church. He has written over 30 books, including Simply Christian, Surprised by Hope, What St. Paul Really Said, The Challenge of Jesus, Jesus and the Victory of God, Paul and the Faithfulness of God, The Case for the Psalms, and his most recent, The Day the Revolution Began, Reconsidering the Meaning of Jesus' Crucifixion. He has also written the New Testament for Everyone commentary series. Formerly Bishop of Durham in England, Tom Wright is Research Professor of New Testament and Early Christianity at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. He has served as Canon Theologian of Westminster Abbey and Dean of Litchfield Cathedral. 
He taught New Testament for over 20 years at Cambridge, McGill, and Oxford universities. In addition to his many books, Tom Wright reaches a broad audience through media appearances and his extensive travel and speaking engagements. He has been a frequent guest of Calvin College and Seminary, and he will be presenting at the Calvin Symposium on worship this coming week. As is customary, our speaker will be available to meet, greet the audience in the West Lobby of the Covenant Fine Arts Center following the presentation. Calvin College and Seminary are grateful to the Staub Lecture Series for underwriting today's presentation. Please join me in welcoming Tom Wright. Thank you so much for your welcome. It's always very good to be back here at Calvin and to have the honor once again of being part of this prestigious January series. Uh, we have done our homework and discovered this is actually the fifth time I've been here. First was 2002, and I hope this won't be the last hint hint to the organizers. It's, it's great to be here. And from a glance at the program this time, it's clear you've had a wonderful series. I wish I could have been with you to soak it all up and get involved in the discussions, but I'm glad I have the chance now to bring it all back home, as it were, by focusing on the event without which there wouldn't be any Christian faith and thought at all, and as I shall be explaining, by uh, without which the principalities and powers of the world would still be ruling unchallenged and unchecked. What I'm going to say is based on and growing out of my new book, The Day the Revolution Began. And before I launch in, let me do one other piece of shameless advertising. This book and several other topics are featured in a series of online courses, which you'll find available at ntwriteonline.org. ntwriteonline.org. I know some of you already done that. Somebody was mentioning it this morning. Now, when we come to the crucifixion, we always ought to do so with awe and trembling. We will never fully understand what's going on here, and we ought just to be grateful and awed by it. All my life, the crucifixion of Jesus has been a powerful presence. My earliest Christian memories from time when I was a small boy are of being overwhelmed at the thought of Jesus loving me enough to die for me. Nothing in the years of academic study and church life has changed that. I have preached on the cross and lectured and written about the cross many times over many years, but until this book, The Day the Revolution Began, I'd never really tried to pull it all together in one place. And even then I was thwarted because the book got too long and I didn't t touch the letter to the Hebrews, which is a major omission. But still, Gospels and Paul and Revelation particularly feature. But I found myself coming to conclusions in this book, which surprised me. I hadn't seen it like this. I hadn't said it like this before. And it was a difficult task. Even though I thought I knew where I was going, it kept on changing as I went along. And I feel that I've got through it something of a fresh perspective, not presumably the last, but a fresh perspective on the deep meaning of Jesus' death. Now, in much popular Christianity, there's a gap at this point. It's always dangerous to say this sort of thing at Calvin, that nobody today thinks that such and such. I discovered this five years ago when I spoke about the forgotten meaning of the Gospels. And various people here, notably Jamie Smith, told me in no uncertain terms that it hadn't been forgotten here at Calvin. Thank you very much. Um, <laughs> 
But I think I'm on safe ground in saying that we all find it easy to lapse into an oversimplified and perhaps distorted vision of what the cross achieved. For the New Testament writers, the cross wasn't just about how we get saved, though of course it is that. It was about the royal revolution that had changed the entire world. So here at the end of this January series, I'm not simply reminding you, let's go back to the Bible and the gospel, good though that will be. I'm suggesting that when we do that, we might see fresh perspectives on what it means as we face pressing issues of many kinds in our society and culture, what it means to be people of that royal revolution. Curiously, I think, most books on the atonement don't give much space to the Gospels. And likewise, many books on the Gospels don't give much space to atonement theology. But here's one of the biggest clues. In all four Gospels, Jesus chose Passover to confront the temple establishment with his radical counterclaim knowing where it would lead. Think about it. He didn't choose tabernacles or Hanukkah. He didn't choose the Day of Atonement. He chose Passover because Jesus' understanding of his own vocation was to accomplish once and for all the new exodus for which Israel had longed. Passover imagery then in the New Testament isn't just miscellaneous biblical decoration around the edge of an atonement theory whose real focus is elsewhere. It is the flesh and blood reality. Within the Gospels recounting of that Passover, one scene stands out which I'm going to use as a way in for our thought this morning or this afternoon or whatever it is. Actually, it's this evening on my body clock, but we'll, we'll, call, it, we'll call it morning because I haven't had my lunch yet. Um, John's Gospel displays deft artistry and fathomless theology throughout but especially in the foot-washing scene in chapter 13. I assume you all basically know the story. In a few lines in John 13, we glimpse a tableau which is both intimate and touching and scary and dangerous. John began his gospel with the all-creative word becoming flesh and revealing God's glory. He now moves to the beginning of the shorter second half of the gospel. Gospel divides clearly between chapters 12 and 13 with an acted parable of exactly the same thing, of the incarnation of the word. Jesus removes his outer garments and kneels down to wash the disciples' feet, summing up all that is to come in this act of divine humility, of loving redemption, of cleansing for service. For John, as for the whole of the New Testament, Jesus' vocation to reveal the divine glory in rescuing the world from its plight is encoded in an action simultaneously dramatic, fraught with cosmic significance, and gentle, tender with human emotion. If you want to understand the mysteries of Christian theology, Trinity, Incarnation, Atonement itself, you could do worse than spend some time in John 13. The chapter begins, having loved his own who were in the world, 
Jesus loved them to the end, to the uttermost. Here we see what it means that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, a love at once powerful and humble, sovereign and sensitive. Jesus' action, the foot washing, shocks the disciples. Peter characteristically raises an objection, shouldn't be doing this, but Jesus waves it away. If I don't wash you, he says, you have no part in me. And that produces a typically petrine overreaction. Well then, says Peter, not my feet only, but my hands and my head as well. Calm down, says Jesus. You are already clean because I have washed you. All you need now is the regular foot washing. But like everything else in John's story, this all then points forward to the great saving action to come in which the filth and mire of the centuries would be washed away in the torrent of water and blood. Jesus then resumes his garments and explains the surface layer of meaning. As I have done this to you, you should do it for one another. Already this points ahead to the spirit-driven ministries of the gospel in John 20. As the Father sent me, so I send you. Atonement then, atonement now. The theology of the cross is only ultimately complete when it issues in the foot-washing, fruit-bearing, and world-transforming mission of Jesus' followers. Into this scene of symbolic prophetic action, John has woven the dark strand which explains why all this is necessary and how the great redemption is to be accomplished. And this is at the heart of the fresh perspective that I'm trying to explore. John says that the accuser, the Satan, had already put it into Judas's heart to betray Jesus. The accuser, the Satan, is the dark subpersonal force that has dogged Jesus' footsteps throughout his mission, rather as in the Lord of the Rings, Gollum is never far away while Frodo and his companions undertake their fateful journey. Jesus had already hinted that one of his own followers would act out the great accusation, the charge that would take him to his death. It isn't just, you see, that Satan has now tempted Judas to do something particularly wicked. That's true as well, but it's not the point. Rather, the Satan, the accuser, is working through Judas to bring Jesus to trial, to accuse him, in other words. The hate and shame of all the world, the raging howl that rises from the accumulated forces of evil, of anti-creation, of tyranny and spite and sneering and lies, has gathered itself into one and has focused its deadly spotlight on the enfleshed word, the living embodiment of the loving and wise creator. And love only makes it worse. It is after the foot washing, where Jesus warns that you are already clean, though not all of you. It's after that that the Satan finally enters into Judas. Do it quickly, says Jesus, and Judas, Judas goes out into the night. People sometimes say that Luke was an artist, but if ever a biblical scene had all the elements of a great canvas, holding many different characters and moods within a single dramatic tableau, it's that scene in John 13. 
some here may know, if there are any old masters of that scene. I can't recall any, but I'm not an art historian. Now, I begin here in John 13 in order to stir your imaginations to move beyond theories and models of atonement and to reach into vivid historical reality. John has carefully positioned the foot-washing scene to launch the final moves to the foot of the cross and out beyond to the fresh morning in the garden and the warm breath of the outpoured spirit. The theories of atonement to which we shall return mean what they mean as interpretations of the real-life narrative of the word made flesh, of the flesh made shameful, of shame itself killed and buried. The theories are at their best battered little signposts pointing towards that larger reality. And the Gospels are written not, as so often in Christian readings, the Gospels are written not to provide lively illustrations of those theories, but to name and invoke the historical reality towards which the theories point. When Jesus wanted to explain to his followers what his death was going to mean, he didn't give them a theory, he gave them a meal on the one hand, and a dramatic action on the other. The word became flesh, and it is in flesh, his flesh, and then worryingly, our flesh, that the truth is revealed. God forgive us that we have often answered skeptical rationalism with fideistic rationalism. It's in flesh that the world was saved. It is in the flesh that the glory was and is revealed. Now, John places this tableau of chapter 13 not simply within his gospel, but by multiple implication within the vast and sprawling scriptural story of Israel and the world. One of the reasons we need fresh perspectives on the cross is that we have failed to pay attention to that great story. We have reduced it to a string of proof texts for doctrines that we have culled from elsewhere. John insists otherwise. In particular, his prologue places the whole story within the long reach of the first two books of the Bible. It's well known that John focuses on the temple, on Jesus and the temple, Jesus upstaging the temple, Jesus speaking about the temple's demise and the building of a new one, and on Jesus finally doing what the temple could not. That is common coin. Anyone who seriously reads John knows that. But what has this to do with Genesis and Exodus? Time for some basic but often ignored biblical theology. Again, a nod to anyone here who would tell me that here at Calvin, of course, we don't ignore this. I'm delighted to hear that. Thank you. <laughs> but there may be some here who need gentle reminders. Genesis 1 and 2 describe to first century eyes the construction of the ultimate temple, the single heaven and earth reality, the one cosmos within which the twin realities of God's space, heaven, and our space, earth, are held together in balanced mutual relation. That's what a temple is, a place which holds heaven and earth together. And the seven stages of creation, as many scholars have pointed out, are the seven stages of building a temple into which the builder will come to take up residence, to take their rest. Here is Zion, says God, my resting place. 
Within this temple, the final element created on the sixth day is the image. That's what you do when you build a temple in the ancient world, you finally put in an image of the God through which the rest of creation will see and worship the creator. But the image also is the creature through which the creator becomes present and active in and with his creation. The God of Genesis 1 is the heaven and earth God, the God who chooses to work through humans in the world. And with this, we understand both the start and the climax of John's gospel. The start, you all know it, in the beginning was the word, en arche, corresponding to Genesis 1.1, bereshit, in the beginning, God created. And now in the beginning was the word, and the word became flesh. And then on to the climax of John's gospel, on the last Friday, the sixth day of the week, the representative of the world's ruler, Pontius Pilate, declares, behold the man. Pilate says far more than he knows, acknowledging that Jesus is the proper man, the true image. When we look at him, John has already told us, we see the Father. That's what an image enables. And the Father is present, working powerfully through him. The whole of the gospel is about that. And when, as he says, the light has shone in the gathering darkness and the darkness has tried to extinguish it, the final word that Jesus speaks, chapter 19, verse 30, echoes Genesis once more, tetelestai, it is finished. The work is accomplished. There then follows the rest on the seventh day, the rest in the tomb, before the first day of the new week, the eighth day, when Mary Magdalene comes to the garden, and discovers that the new creation has begun. John is writing a new Genesis. And the death of Jesus places at the heart of this heaven and earth reality, the sign and symbol of the image through which the world will see and recognize its creator and know him as the God of unstoppable love the sign and symbol of the image through which the creator has established that love at the climax of world history, the revolution that changes the world, the fountainhead for the rivers of water that will now flow out to refresh and renew the whole creation. That is the primary story John is telling. But if it's a new Genesis, it is also a new Exodus. Here there's a problem. For years when reading Exodus, I used to misjudge Moses' request to Pharaoh. You remember Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, uh, we need to leave because we need to worship our God in the desert. I used to think that was just an excuse. We, we actually want to go to our promised land. Pharaoh's not gonna let us do that, so let's tell him we wanna go and worship in the desert. But the whole logic of the Pentateuch forbids that interpretation. If you read Exodus as a run, at a run, you'll get to Mount Sinai easily enough. It's a page turner up to that point. The pace then seems to slacken for a moment as you get the first lists of rules and regulations. But in fact, the narrative now moves swiftly forwards to the main purpose, which is the restoration of creation itself. How? This is the purpose for which God called Abraham in the first place. The purpose to join heaven and earth together once more, only now in dramatic symbol and onward pointing sign. The giving of Torah is just preparation. 
what matters is the tabernacle. We should thank God for the many studies of tabernacle and temple theology now available, and we should repent for the Protestant ignoring of that strand of Scripture. The tabernacle is the microcosmos, the little world, the heaven and earth place, the mysterious, untamable, moving tent in which the living God comes to dwell, to tabernacle indeed in the midst of his people, in the pillar of cloud and fire. The whole book of Exodus is moving towards this moment in chapter 40. The tent is constructed and decorated with the highest human artistry. That itself is part of the point. And the divine glory comes to dwell in it so that even Moses can't enter. Exodus 40 answers to Genesis 1 and 2. There's a long narrative arc that joins them. Creation is in principle renewed. Heaven and earth are held together again. The world itself is halted from its slide back to chaos. And the people of God, tent makers and tent keepers and pilgrims, wherever the glory-filled tent will lead them, are to live the dangerous and challenging life of a people in whose midst there now dwells in strange, humble sovereignty, the living hope for the whole of creation. All of this and much more, think of Solomon's temple in 1 Kings, think of the vision in Isaiah 6, all of this is then poured by John into the dense revolutionary reality of his prologue as it reaches its climax. In the beginning was the word, and the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, and we gazed upon his glory. We have been allowed where Moses was not. We have seen the glory, the heaven and earth reality, the human microcosmos, the tent where the God of the Exodus is revealed as the one God of creation and new creation. John is describing in his gospel the ultimate exodus through which creation itself is rescued and renewed to be the new creation which comes to birth on the eighth day after the dark power, the great and terrible Pharaoh, has been defeated once and for all. Of course, Genesis and Exodus themselves indicate that things are not going to be straightforward. The glorious vision of Genesis 1 and 2 gives way quickly to the whispering serpent, the original exile, the first murder, the long decline into human arrogance, which ends with the Tower of Babel. Eden and Babylon like Jesus and Judas at the Last Supper, frame the action which follows. As Abraham and his family are called to a stupendous vocation and come repeatedly within a whisker of throwing it all away. You know, they go down to Egypt and Abraham says that Sarah is his sister. The whole thing might have been aborted right there. And then the children of Israel, gloriously rescued and on their way to the promised inheritance, make a golden calf at the very moment when the microcosmos was about to be constructed among them. And it only doesn't then go horribly wrong because Moses goes and has a shouting match. Don't you love that scene where God says to Moses, your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt, they've done wrong, you push off. 
And Moses says, no, you got it wrong. They're your people and you brought them. It's your reputation that's on the line. This, this, is, this is classic Jewish prayer. I love it. And it works. But as the Pentateuch moves to its puzzling conclusion at the end of Deuteronomy, it becomes clear that the people of God, the tent keepers, if you like, are still a rebellious people who will have to suffer the consequences of putting other images at the intersection of heaven and earth. And they, like their primal forebears, will go into exile, not despite the fact that they're covenant people, but because they're the covenant people, and that's what happens when the covenant people are disobedient and worship other gods. God will fill his creation with his glory, but it will come through the casting away and receiving back of the tent keepers, and ultimately through the casting away and receiving back of their royal representative. Genesis and Exodus then give us the structure, the framework of all subsequent biblical theology, and perhaps of John's gospel in particular. God will rescue and restore his heaven and earth creation. And the tabernacle is the sign and seal of that promise. Aaron and his sons, the priests, are the image reflectors who hold that hope together. And Israel as a whole is the royal priesthood for the sake of the whole of creation. And the five books of Moses then give us the story stretching forward in the final prophetic chapters of Deuteronomy to embrace the whole period of kings and prophets of exile and restoration. And the kings, themselves a deeply ambiguous lot, are nevertheless called in the Psalms to be the image bearers, to be the spearhead, the metaphor is not too harsh, of Yahweh's victory over the powers of evil to be the focus of his reign of justice and peace. Think of those royal psalms, Psalm 2, Psalm 8, read royally as it should be, uh, Psalm 72, 89, 110. There is to be a royal revolution against the principalities and powers. Or so it seems, until kings and priests and even prophets alike fail miserably. And the prophets, the, the, the uh, canonical prophets, particularly Isaiah and Ezekiel, see the glory of God and the shame of Israel in severe counterpoint with the consequence that the shame is complete and the glory departs. But Ezekiel then describes the creation of the new temple with Ezekiel 43 corresponding to Exodus 40 as the divine glory returns at last. And Isaiah, in his gospel of comfort, describes the scene of majesty in which the sovereign God comes back. The mountains are flattened and the valleys are filled in for the glory to be revealed for all flesh to witness it. And the majesty is joined with tender intimacy, just as in John 13, he will feed his flock like a shepherd, gather the lambs in his arms, and gently lead the mother sheep. This is then a new exodus, a new Passover. That's what we're talking about all through. This prophetic theme, though, stretches like a long question mark over the 400 years after exile in Babel, until a voice in the wilderness declares that the time has come. King, temple, new exodus, new creation. John sees these themes rushing together and with his deceptively simple artistry 
of his narrative. He's held onto them and shown how they fit. Jesus chose Passover as the moment to awaken the biblical resonances which would frame his final kingdom-bringing action and passion, his royal revolution. And the gospel writers following this foundational insight tell the story of Jesus as the story of the strange new exodus in which the glory returns at last, but in a form nobody had seen coming. No wonder Caiaphas and his cronies were alarmed. Their priestly role, supposedly, standing between heaven and earth, was about to be upstaged once and for all by the true image, the word made flesh, who would sum up in himself both the long-delayed obedience of Israel and the long-awaited return of Israel's God. These two fit together. When Paul, quoting the early formula, says that the Messiah died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, it is this complex narrative full of doom and glory that he has in mind. Proof texts are for the birds, or more accurately for neo-Marcionite rationalists. <laughs> what matters is the story, the true story. John and Paul draw out one theme in particular from Exodus, Isaiah, from the entire earlier narrative. Babel must be overthrown if Abraham's people are to inherit the world. Pharaoh must be overthrown if Abraham's family are to be rescued. Babylon and its gods must be overthrown if the new Exodus is to be accomplished. This victory of God against the usurping powers is clear throughout the prophets particularly Isaiah, for whom God's kingdom will be established through the defeat of the dark powers and the return of Yahweh to Zion, both of which will occur through the work and the shameful death of the servant. All this is retrieved and celebrated by the gospel writers, particularly John, as he leads the eye up from his prologue through the foot-washing scene and onto the cross. Jesus' signs in John unveil his glory, starting with the wedding at Cana, which is itself a temple image symbolizing the marriage of heaven and earth. And the sequence of signs leads to the cross, where the dark glory of God is revealed as the glory of the true image, the priest, the lover, the king, the royal revolutionary. This theme, picked up in the foot-washing scene where Judas embodies the Satan, has actually been highlighted in the previous chapter, John 12. As John draws together the threads from the first half of his gospel, he quotes just those passages from Isaiah in which the ideas I've sketched come to sharp expression. And the crucial passage I want to look at now, John 12, verses 20 to 36, you probably know it by heart, being good Calvin folk, but if you don't, look it up when you get home. John 12, 20 to 36, begins with a typical Johannine puzzle. Some Greeks come to the feast and want to see Jesus. What's going on here? Jesus, instead of arranging, you know, if some Greeks came to me and said, yeah, sure, I'd say, let's go and have a moussaka later on in the day and uh, sort it out. But instead of arranging to meet them, Jesus speaks in riddles. 
The hour has come, he says, for the Son of Man to be glorified, for the grain of wheat to fall into the earth and die so that it can bear much fruit. What's that got to do with these poor Greeks who want to see him? Jesus is gazing beyond the immediate request to the ultimate purpose. The world upon which he looks out, the pagan world, and also tragically the Jewish world, is in the grip of the Pharaoh, the dark Babel gods, the ruler of this world. There is no point having a chat with these Greeks here and now. What matters is not to understand the world, but to rescue the world. This is the time for God's name to be glorified, for judgment to be passed on the ruler of the world. Now, says Jesus, the ruler of this world is to be cast out, and when I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. That is the answer. Jesus' death will be the means by which the power that has gripped the world of Greek and Jew alike will be overthrown by the greater power, the power the world never imagined, the revolutionary power of a royal love which loves its own and loves them to the end. Then it will be time for the Greeks to come in freed from the powers that have hitherto enslaved them and prevented their approach to Israel's God. You see, in John's Gospel, there are two things which cannot happen until Jesus has died, apart from the resurrection and the new creation themselves. First, in chapter 7, the Spirit cannot be poured out into the world through the hearts of the disciples into the world until Jesus is glorified. And then here in chapter 12, the dark power which has held the world in its grip must be defeated before it makes any sense for the Greeks to come and see Jesus. Look wider and weep for what the church has done. The Greeks cannot hold Jesus within their world of theory. They need to be embraced by the world of the new temple, the new cosmos that will open up when their present captivity is undone. How often we in the church have exchanged that vision for a set of theories. Jesus' death will overthrow the power, the ruler of this world, and then it will be time, as Paul sees in 1 Corinthians 2, for the hidden wisdom to shine forth. And that is why chapters 18 and 19, where Jesus engages in sharp dialogue with Pontius Pilate, kingdom of God versus kingdom of Caesar, is so vital to the meaning of the story and also for today's implications of the royal revolution. Pilate asks about kingdom. Jesus replies about truth. Pilate doesn't know what truth is because the only truth he knows is power. Sounds familiar. In his case, the power to kill. And Jesus says, all power, including yours, Pilate, comes from above. But what he doesn't explain, because like the Greeks, Pilate just wouldn't get it, is that ultimate power, the revolutionary power, is the foot-washing power, the Passover power, the power of radical, transformative love. But on the cross, as John makes clear, that love goes powerfully to work. John explains this again, not with theory, but with small scenes that bring out the meaning. There is the tender moment with Mary and John, 
And there is Pilate himself declaring, what I have written, I have written. Not realizing, again in 1 Corinthians, that by declaring Jesus to be king of the Jews, Pilate is acknowledging him, Psalm 2, Psalm 72, etc., as the Lord of the world, the ultimate ruler, the justice bringer, the revolutionary. Tetelestai, it's finished. The new tabernacle, the new creation, rescued from the wreck of the old through the king who is also the Passover lamb whose bones remain unbroken. New exodus, real return from exile, return of Yahweh to Zion, messianic enthronement, priestly work complete, revolution accomplished, creation itself ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. My friends, please don't ever think of trying to construct something called atonement theology, unless you know with John and Paul what it means that the Messiah died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Because of course we have tried, the Western tradition has tried to do it in many other ways. We have erected different structures with Israel's scriptures as merely a source book for random prophecies which can then be fitted into the redemption narratives which we have gleaned or constructed from elsewhere. And we've then distorted those texts themselves to play the role demanded by those other narratives. Narratives of divine honor offended, divine law court sitting in judgment, human muddle and mistake. All these matter in their own way. But if we start with them, we will skew the whole. Even atonement itself, the word is far less precise actually than we normally imagine, must include so much more, including the notions of sacrifice, which goes on past the cross and up to the ascension, where according to Hebrews, the son offers his once for all sacrifice in the heavenly temple. And these ideas themselves can be and have been distorted as we've put them into our different frameworks. In particular, I can't spend long on this now, but just to put down a marker, we have misread the sacrificial traditions of ancient Israel. In the Levitical and Numbers sacrifices, animals were not being subjected to a vicarious death penalty. They were killed so that their blood, itself a gift from God, would cleanse the sanctuary to maintain the heaven and earth reality in the midst of an as yet unredeemed world. Passover was not an atoning sacrifice. The only animal that ever has sins confessed over its head is the only animal in the Levitical rituals that does not get killed, the scapegoat that bears Israel's sins into the wilderness. So many muddles and mistakes there, largely again as with the temple theology in general, because the Western world has been so distanced from the entire subculture within which these things originally made the sense they did. But these and other misreadings are enshrined in our traditions. The much cherished and defended atonement theology of the 16th century reformers, which has been vital in some ways as a bulwark against other errors. Those theologies were themselves framed in reaction to late medieval ideas, particularly of purgatory and the mass. The reformers were trying to give biblical answers to 15th century questions. That's a noble aim. But the Bible itself, rightly seen as authoritative, makes it clear that this is not enough. We must get inside the world of the Bible to hear their questions and to see their answers as answers to those questions. 
We must understand what it means that the Messiah died for our sins in accordance with, along the line of, as the fulfillment of, the great single narrative of Israel's scriptures. And only so will we get fresh clarity in our thinking and equally importantly, fresh energy for our mission. I have said almost as a mantra in one lecture after another, I may well have said it here before, we in the Western church have to stop giving 19th century answers to 16th century questions and start giving 21st century answers to first century questions. And that's tough. I've tried in the book to summarize in three moves what I think has gone wrong. First, we have Platonized our eschatology. If you've read my book, Surprised by Hope, you'll know what I'm talking about. If you haven't, please do. I think you'll enjoy it. <laughs> we have Platonized our eschatology. That is, we have assumed that the aim of Christian faith is going to heaven when you die, not realizing that the people who taught that in the first century were not the Christians, but the middle Platonists, not Paul, but Plutarch. The New Testament is not about souls going up to heaven, but about the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven to earth about the new creation already symbolized in the wilderness tabernacle. No wonder we never understood temple theology and brought into reality by the royal priest, Israel's ultimate representative, the word made flesh. And when you get this right, it isn't just a matter of adjusting a few nuts and bolts about personal eschatology and future. What we say about the future plays back into how we think about everything else particularly how we conceive the problem to which the cross and resurrection are offered in the New Testament as the solution. Because second, if we simply think about souls going to heaven, Platonizing our eschatology, we shrink the human vocation to be image bearers, to be the royal priesthood, to be God reflectors in the world into mere moralism. Now, morals matter but morals matter as the byproduct of being image bearers, summing up the praises of creation rather than worshiping and serving idols. Morality matters because only through properly functioning image bearers will God's rescuing justice flow out into the world. But if we focus on morality, thereby making the knowledge of good and evil the fruit around which we construct our theological menu, then we turn the whole drama of creation and new creation into a self-centered play about me and my sin and what God's going to do about it. And then with much Western theology, we read Genesis and what follows, not as the story of the temple and the image, and not in consequence as the story of idolatry, but simply as the story of humans failing an exam, deserving punishment, and the punishment falling somewhere else. In the Bible, though, what ultimately matters is not sin, but idolatry, wrongly directed worship. That's what produces sin. And that's why the Christus Victor theme, victory over the dark powers, takes priority over and then contextualizes God's dealings with sin. When we worship idols, we give them the power we ourselves ought as image bearers to be exercising. And we have then Platonized our eschatology, and to fit with that, we have moralized our anthropology. And the result is, third, that we've been in danger of paganizing our soteriology. 
It's in the ancient pagan world, not the ancient Jewish world, that we find stories of an angry God and an innocent victim and somebody being rescued from divine wrath because some innocent person got in the way at the last minute. Now, of course, very few preachers or theologians would admit to preaching the gospel like that. They will always insist that they speak of Jesus' death as the act of divine love. But you know and I know that this pagan story is what generations of people in our churches have heard. And that's been easy because that's how generations of Christians have behaved. Using would-be redemptive violence, whether internationally or domestically, and always asserting that it is done with the best of intentions out of love. And so people hear what they think is supposed to be the gospel, but instead of hearing God so loved the world that he gave his only son, they hear God so hated the world that he killed his only son. And the biblical truth of penal substitution is thereby distorted and shrunk. Distorted, because there is a biblical truth of penal substitution. You find it in a classic passage like Romans 8, 1 to 4. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because on the cross, God condemned sin in the flesh. Definitely penal, definitely substitutionary. But it doesn't belong within the normal Western narrative. It belongs within the much more interesting narrative of Paul's story of how humans are reconformed to the image of the Son. And Paul's formulae mean what they mean within the narratives to be found where most theologians don't bother looking for them. In the Gospels themselves, the story of God's kingdom coming on earth as in heaven. Perhaps this, is because, perhaps this is muted because it generates at once, as John's Gospel obviously does, what we today with our little categories call political theology. How can the good news that God's, the, the world's creator has rescued creation from disaster and established his son, his image at the center of the new world, how can this not have implications for every polis, every household, every community and country, every polity and policy? How can we not at once be driven to reflect and act on the basis that the dark powers have been defeated so that the power of love may flood the world? And if we really grasp that, would we not recognize that the grandiose and messianic statements we hear from people on both sides of the Atlantic are in fact a grim and self-serving parody, a gross caricature of the reality? And this is what I mean when I say that normal theories about the atonement have actually shrunk the meaning of penal substitution. One of the online reviewers of my book accused me of not explaining how this, all this stuff actually works, but he ignored the point. Here's how it works. In the four gospels, the story of Jesus is set in counterpoint with the biblical story of, is, of, of evil the snake in the garden, the tottering tower of Babel, the power of Pharaoh killing the babies, think of Herod, rebellious Israel, wicked priests and kings, false prophets, idolatries right, left and center. And then Jesus announces, arrives and announces that God is now becoming king and that it looks like this and he draws onto himself as though by a magnet all the evil in the world from the shrieking demons in the synagogue to the plotting priests in the Sanhedrin and ultimately to Pilate. Judas and Pilate merely bring into sharp focus what is going on all along. Evil is gathered together in one place and does its worst. And this is how atonement works. 
with Jesus' death, exactly as in Scripture, Pharaoh is overthrown, Babel crashes to the ground, the gods of this world are robbed of their power. Because Jesus, representing Israel, representing thereby the whole human race, and equally representing and embodying the Creator God Himself, took upon Himself the weight of evil hanging over all flesh. This is your hour, said Jesus, as they arrested Him, and the power of darkness. And He went into the heart of that darkness, so that Peter and the others wouldn't suffer it, so that Barabbas and the brigand on the cross might be freed, so that like the chickens protected by the death of the mother hen, those who come to him for shelter would find that he'd taken their place. The victory then is won through the representative substitution of the servant, the son, the image, the lover, the foot washer, the one who has saved the world and revealed the glory at last. And this, not some cheap and logic-chopped scheme, is why there is forgiveness of sins. Why Gentiles are now freed from the enslaving powers to become members of God's family. This is why Jesus' followers do not constitute a religion like other so-called religions to be catalogued by secular modernity, pinned to the wall like so many dead butterflies, but a polis, a new kind of community, a spirit-driven, suffering love people who follow their master to the places where the world is in pain in order that by the spirit they may embody the love of God and the pain of God right there and bring God's healing and hope. And this is why the church urgently needs to reclaim our primary role of speaking truth to power, exactly as Jesus did in John 18 and 19. Unless we read the gospels like this, and to this end, we are falsifying them as we do when we chop them into little snippets and use them as moral lessons or whatever. The Gospels are the launching narrative of our own story, the first act in the new divine drama in which we are called to play our part. And this is why, as I draw to my close, we need not a refined set of theories, but a larger vision of the biblical narrative. My new book poses a question, by the evening of the first Good Friday, what had changed? Clearly, all the New Testament writers think something had changed in the world. What was it? And how do we make that reality not just our own, but our mission? The modern world has displaced the Christian narrative because it tells a story in which the redemptive moment arrived in the 18th century with the revolutions, with science and technology, with the banishing of God to a distant realm so that we could run the world ourselves. God could be visited by the pious few like a kind family calling on an elderly relative every Sunday. The Western churches have regularly colluded with this diminishment of the Bible and the gospel. And that is one of the reasons why the vacuum is filled by the rough beasts now slouching towards Bethlehem. But the cross told us the climax of all four gospels, particularly John's, which I focused on, leaves us no choice. Now is the judgment of this world. Now is the ruler of this world cast out. We have some fresh thinking to do, to put it mildly, but thinking the realm of logos has become flesh. It must become flesh once again. That is how the glory will be revealed in tomorrow's world. That's how the world, saved once for all by Jesus' revolutionary victory on the cross, will, as he promised, be filled with his glory and knowledge 
as the waters cover the sea. We are to be in the power of the Spirit, new Genesis people, new Exodus people, new gospel people, new Jesus people. This is the royal revolution. And this is the fresh perspective on the cross, which I believe we urgently need in our troubled times. Thank you. We have already lots of questions coming in, and I'll ask you one that I, I realize is the tip of the iceberg maybe, but a student would like you to clarify just a little bit your comment that it is idolatry and not sin that we need to focus on. In the Bible, sin is what happens in your humanness when you've actually been worshiping that which is not God. You become a genuine human by worshiping the true God in whose image you're made. When you worship whatever idols they may be, the ancient ones of Mars and Mammon and Aphrodite or all our modern ones which correspond and go beyond, etc., then bits of your humanness start to deconstruct. And that deconstruction is sin. So sin matters, but if you just try and address sin as sin, you'll miss what's going on underneath. Thank you. Oh, come back. Uh, well, the next question I know is, uh, asks about, uh, when you talk about the renewal of creation, you said the purpose of God tabernacling is the renewal of creation. Do you mean by that the spiritual renewal or physical? <laughs> it's, uh, that, that's the classic platonic either or. Uh, it's got to be both because those wonderful passages, I just quoted one of them, about the earth being full of the knowledge or glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. There's a sense that our distinction of physical and spiritual does not correspond to the Bible's distinction of heaven and earth. Heaven and earth are made for one another. They are not in, it's, it's one of the classic lies of the post-enlightenment world to think that if there is a heaven, it's completely different from the earth and never the twain shall meet. In fact, they are made for one another. Could you talk about the Holy Spirit's role during the crucifixion? That's a very interesting one. Um, there is a silence, a darkness in the gospel narratives. The Spirit is not mentioned there. However, I think if we were to ask John what was the Spirit doing, I think John would say the Spirit was dwelling within Jesus, um, just as in Paul in Romans 8, Paul says that the spirit groans within us as we groan in desperation, particularly when we don't know what to pray for. That is a crucifixion image in Romans 8, 20, 5, 6, 7, that part. Uh, and it seems to me what's going on on the cross is Jesus living out that reality. And I think John and Paul would both say the spirit was there enabling Jesus to, to, to shout tetelestai, etc. I'm going to make a lot of theologians mad here, but I... The soccer team wants to know who you favor in the English Premier League. <laughs> um, Priorities. I'm, I'm not currently interested in the Premier League because the team I've supported all my life is Newcastle United, which currently is in the championship. Happily, they're at the top of the championship and they will be promoted at the end of the season. Okay. <laughs> you heard it first here. Yes. Um, so why and how did the present popular escapist notions of heaven and hell come to dominate the Christian imagination? I, I think that's a medieval thing, and it's a medieval retrieval of ancient paganism. It's, I mean, most people don't know this, but actually the idea of a heaven and a hell 
in, in the sense we often think of them, is very frequent in the ancient pagan world rather than the ancient Jewish world. And the early Christians do not retrieve that pagan notion, but it creeps back in, like a lot of bits and pieces of paganism creep in um, as you move towards the... Mid I mean, I'm not a medievalist, but I merely observe I that am. there's... Oh, okay, fine. Well, you can, you can no, ask the question better than me. But I mean, uh, so that by the time you get the 15th and 16th century, it's very well established in Western Christianity, not in the East. The Eastern Christians, have, you know, the split at 1000 AD, um, the Eastern Christians simply don't see eschatology like that. They have, they have other problems, but not this one. They actually believe that heaven and earth are made for each other and that that's what Jesus is all about. That is one of the things that made me a medievalist is the notion that you, you, don't, you don't separate everything. So uh -huh. yeah. Here's a question on a different note. How do you balance personal life and life in the ministry? It's extremely busy. Um, I get up very early in the morning. I say my prayers and do the next three things that have to be done. I mean, it's, uh, there's, no, there's no real secret to that. It's just the basic disciplines. Um, and it's a constant juggling act, a constant negotiation, a constant should I accept this speaking engagement or something else. And um, yeah. I've been, I've been juggling it for 45 years. It doesn't get any easier. It's fun, though. I mean, yeah, we have a, good. a good time. I'm glad it is. Um, would you talk just a little bit? We have a book on Paul to look forward to. Maybe oh, tell us a little yeah, bit. Yeah, I just, my publishers asked me, I mean, I've written quite a few books on Paul, as was mentioned earlier, but they said, we, we need a biography of Paul. People need to know who this guy was. And I, I thought it'd be really neat to try and do it in such a way that we understand what he's going through and how he's facing things so that when then we find him writing a letter, we already know roughly what he ought to be saying to these people, how it might work, rather than meeting the letter cold, as it were, as a, a document outside history to try to get inside. And it's, some of it is inevitably speculative because there are gaps we don't know very much about bits and pieces. It's difficult to fit all the bits, to, that, but that's common to all ancient history, that you have that kind of a problem of gaps where we don't know what's going on. So anyway, that book went off to the publishers last Thursday, middle day, and I'm waiting with bated breath to hear how much editorial, you know, it's quite possible my editor will come back and say, I don't like chapters five, six, and seven, do it differently. And, so I'm hoping and praying that he won't do that. <laughs> See, it's not just your English teacher. <laughs> How would you teach the resurrection and crucifixion, let's put that in the other order, uh, the, cruci the crucifixion and resurrection to a child? Uh, I would want to have them in church with me over Holy Week and Good Friday and Easter because this is a drama, it's a real life drama, and children learn um, I think extremely well by living through a drama and the questions that they ask, ask as they're doing that um, can be very illuminating and revealing. Um, and I think there are lots of musical things. I mean, I, I think I first really started to think about all this when as a seven-year-old I was singing in the Ripieno chorus in Bach's Matthew Passion um, where you're just you know here's the entire drama of Matthew chapters 26 and 27 and you're just living it um, and the music is helping you reflect on it and at that age of course I'm completely innocent of all that Bach was doing but it's doing something to you so I would in other words I would want to create an imaginative context within which then the things one might want to say by way of more explicit theory or whatever might make the sense they might make. Um, some hymns do this very well, not all, um, because poetry, like drama, like music, reaches the parts that often logic can't. 
I like what you just said. I like everything <laughs> Phew, you just I'm said. <laughs> I'd like to thank you all for coming and uh, let you know that uh, Tom Wright will be out in the front lobby afterwards. Uh, it's been great. Thank you, Christy Potter. Thank you, AV and Physical Plant and Security and listeners and talkers and everyone. Thank you very much. <laughs>